Uh, we're going to dive into Obadiah in just a second. Let me say good morning. My name is Darren and I work on staff here. I'm happy to meet all of you. Some of you are family and we've known each other for a long time. But if you're new or you're visiting with somebody, we're so glad you're here. I know that's already been said. But just know that if there's anything I personally can do to kind of help you figure out how to make this place home, I'm happy to do that. I'll be around after the service. I'd love to meet you, answer questions, whatever, in addition to the Connect wall that you can always check out. Uh, we, I told you last week we were kicking off our brand new ministry, our soccer ministry for people with disabilities called Gold Stars. That actually kicked off yesterday. We got a couple pictures of it and uh, it was so fun yesterday. So yesterday was just kind of a meet and greet. The kids came out and they're kicking the ball and kind of getting a feel for the, for the field. We're actually uh, doing this ministry at Beachwood School. So we're thankful to Fullerton School District for letting us use that space. But uh, so they did kind of a meet and greet yesterday, met their coaches, met some of the refs, that kind of thing. Next week, we'll be doing a clinic with like basic skills. And then in two weeks, uh, we'll actually start team play. So that's coming up. We could still use help. And I'm telling you, you would be as blessed as all of those participants. If you came out and were a part of this thing, you would love it. So you can sign up on the website or whatever if you want to jump in, even if you want to jump in for a couple of weeks. Uh, but very cool things happening with Gold Star. So I wanted you to know about that. Uh, I also wanted to remind you that we are finishing up this morning a summer series that we've been in called Who You Calling the Minor Prophets, where we've studied Hosea, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah. Uh, That finishes today. Next week, we will start a brand new series that will run for four weeks that we do kind of every fall called Who We Are. And the Who We Are series is a time for us to remind ourselves... Why does Fullerton Free exist? What are we doing here? Next week, we're going to talk about the centrality of Jesus and the fact that everything we do, everything we're planning, everything we're aiming at has to do with the revelation of Christ, that that's at the core of everything we are. And then in the weeks that are following that, we'll be talking about how our mission and vision and values and our programs, all that stuff comes out of the centrality of Jesus. But it's going to be a great series for those of you who are new to get a sense of whether or not this is the kind of church you'd want to be a part of. And it's going to be a great series for those of you who've been around forever to be reminded why you're a part of a church like this at this particular corner at this particular time. So it's also a great time to bring friends. And if you've got neighbors or people that you think would be interested, it's a great sort of introductory series for people to check out Fullerton Free. And that starts next week. So all that said, let's look at Obadiah. We're in our second week of our study in Obadiah, and if you were with us last week, I sort of uh, emphasized the the primary theme or the major theme in the book of Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah is a book that was written to show God's judgment upon the people of Edom. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that the people of Edom are the descendants of Esau. They're actually family relations to the people of Israel. And God's judgment upon them is that in their time of need, the people of Edom were uh, on the good side. They were indifferent to the suffering of their family family. And at the very worst, they participated in that suffering. And we've just read it again. So you've seen some of those accusations, but God says you shouldn't gloat over the suffering of others. You shouldn't have participated in the suffering of others. You shouldn't have gathered up their refugees and handed them over to their oppressors. Like you missed an opportunity to put God's mercy on display. So when we're looking at the book of Obadiah, one of the major overarching themes is that God does not look kindly upon people who betray their brothers, that he is calling all of us to live a life of faithfulness towards our fellow man. If that's the major theme of last week, I'm showing the other side of the coin this week because Obadiah does a second major theme really well. And the second major theme we see in the book of Obadiah is not only you should not betray other people, right? The second theme is that in the midst of your betrayal, God sees you and is faithful to you. So this is intensely relevant, right? Because each and every one of us who are in the room have had those moments where people that 
we thought we could trust turned out to be people that we couldn't trust. Where people said one thing and did another. Maybe, uh, your, maybe your dad left your family when you were young or your mom left your family or maybe you had a coworker who took all your cash and ran. Or There are a lot of different ways in which we can feel betrayed in this life in big ways and in small ways. And if you've ever been in the situation where you felt hurt or disappointed or wounded because of the betrayal of your fellow human beings, um, Obadiah speaks to your pain and it speaks to your suffering and it speaks to that sense of betrayal. One of the macro things we see when we look at the book of Obadiah is that while the judgments of the book of Obadiah are written about the people of Edom, The book itself is not written to the Edomites. It's written to the Israelites. So God says to the people of Israel, I have seen what Edom has done and I will do something about that. I will bring justice. But the message of Obadiah is not for the people of Edom. The message of Obadiah is for God's people who are suffering not only in the punishment of being exiled from their homes, but in the double down on the punishment of the fact that their cousins and nephews and uncles, all these people of Edom, had betrayed them in their moment of great need. God sees them in that. So so the second major theme as we look at Obadiah this week is this, that in those moments where you experience loss, in those moments where you've been betrayed, where you've been let down, where people have turned on you, or they've said things about you that aren't true, or they haven't come to your aid in your time of need, and you felt like, what is happening in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of betrayal, what Obadiah shows us is that you're not alone, that God sees you in the midst of that, that he has a message of hope for you in the midst of that suffering, which we all have experienced. So we think about Obadiah, you and I, we don't want to hear one message and not the other, we want to hear both of these. We want to feel the rebuke about the fact that God takes very seriously our loyalty to our fellow human beings. And we also want to hear God's comfort to us in the midst of the times when other people have not been particularly loyal to us. Does that make sense? In those moments where you're feeling isolated and alone, where you're hurting, God here speaks to that and he gives them a couple of truths to remind them of who they are and who he is in the midst of their suffering. Now, something important to understand, and I kind of alluded to this already, is that the suffering of the people of Israel in this particular case is not just because of the betrayal of Edom. So sometimes in your life when things are hard or things aren't going well or you know things are really difficult, it's easy to go, well, this is happening to me because of my business partner or this is happening to me because my parents got divorced when I was a kid or this is happening to me because of X, Y, or Z. It's important to know that sometimes the suffering in your life is happening because of, of the... Uh, the unfaithfulness of others or because of the sin of others, that's certainly a way that sometimes we suffer. But it is also true to say that in the case of the people of Israel in the book of Obadiah, their suffering is not just because of the betrayal of Edom. Their suffering is also because God is trying to correct them, right? Their own unfaithfulness had led God to send them into exile. So we want to be really careful as we look at this book and as we think about the application to ourselves, every bit of suffering in your life is not necessarily the fault of someone else. Much of it may be, but you and I also need to be paying attention for the places in our lives where we've been where we've been knuckleheads, right? The moments when you've done things that are sinful or the moments where you've done things that are wrong, things that don't align with God's purposes for your life and don't align with his character. The great thing about God is that he doesn't just leave us in our sin, that he comes and he comes and gives us a flick to get us back on track. God is working to get the people of Israel back on track in their faithfulness to him. And so they are in the midst of punishment, right? They are in the midst of punishment, but God even speaks hope to them in the middle of that. 
So hear this again as we think about the book of Obadiah from sort of a macro lens. In the moments in your life where you've done something stupid or you've done something regrettable or you've made a selfish or a careless or a prideful mistake that hurts other people. In the places in time when God maybe is even correcting you so that you will live a more holy life in the future. Even in the midst of God's punishment of you in the here and now, he still wants you to feel hope. He doesn't want you to abandon hope. He doesn't want you to feel isolated and alone. He doesn't want you to feel like he has absconded from his care for you or his awareness of what's going on in your life. Even in the midst of Israel's punishment, he takes the time to send a prophet like Obadiah to say, God sees you and God is faithful and God is just. And even though you're being punished, you won't be in this forever. And God sees what the Edomites have done and he will take care of that. You don't have to, right? So... So today as we look at it, it's to recognize that God cares for us in the midst of the moments when we ourselves have been betrayed. Now let me just say uh, one other sort of little side note before we get into these three major principles we see in Obadiah. And the first thing to say as a side note is this. Understanding these three principles I'm going to share with you this morning about God and how he works out of the book of Obadiah is not necessarily going to make you happy in the midst of suffering. Does that make sense? It's not like a cure-all that will make, you know, every time someone betrays you or someone you trusted, uh, you know, ends up saying things about you that aren't true or you get abandoned or whatever. In those moments of suffering, it's still going to hurt, right? There isn't a recipe in the Bible for believing certain principles about God and then everything just always being sunshine and rainbows. There is no recipe for you to always just be happy-go-lucky even when people are being cruel to you. The reality is that you can understand these principles I'm going to share with you out of Obadiah. And when people are unkind to you and when people are cruel to you and when people lie about you, it's still going to hurt. It's still going to be painful. It's still going to sort of set you spinning. There is no recipe for you to just be absolutely disengaged from suffering in this life, right? We live in a broken world. Now, believing these truths and understanding these truths about God will make it better, but it won't make all suffering go away. It won't make all pain and hurt right? Go away. It won't make that feeling of betrayal disappear entirely. So don't, don't set your sights on that and don't be disappointed with yourself if in the midst of betrayal you still feel sad. That's perfectly normal. It's a sad thing that's happened. Someone's done something unkind to you, right? Second thing I'll say is that there are some people in the room who've experienced trauma. In fact, if the statistics are correct, there are many people in the room who've experienced trauma. And what I want to say in the case of that is that believing certain things about God will not necessarily take away the negative impact of trauma in your life. There are physical and emotional and spiritual impacts of trauma, particularly prolonged trauma, in the life of human beings that cannot be undone simply by believing certain biblical truths, right? If you're in the room this morning and you've experienced trauma of any kind, physical, emotional, spiritual, if you've experienced any of that kind of abuse, the reality is that believing these truths about God is great for you, but it won't do anything about the ongoing byproduct of trauma in your life. And in fact, it's probably a good idea for you to see a therapist or to see a specialist or to see a counselor, someone who can help you untangle the impact of trauma in your life. Many times in history, the church has actually doubled down and re-traumatized, traumatized people by saying to them in a room like this, hey, if you believe these things, you'll be fine, right? If you still feel depressed, if you don't want to get out of bed in the morning, if you're fearful of relationships with other people, there are all kinds of things that trauma can do to you. Well, believing these things isn't going to undo the effects of trauma, right? You're going to need more care than just believing a couple of, of truths, right? Theology is great, 
but you should also seek professional help. And if the church can help you find professional help in order to deal with some of the traumatization that you've experienced in your life, we're happy to help with that because we see these things going hand in hand, right? We see these things working together. But I don't want you to set an expectation for yourself that after hearing my message, they're going to walk out of here. And and if you're still experiencing the byproducts of trauma, that somehow you're a bad Christian or somehow you don't believe enough or your faith isn't strong enough. We've abused people in addition to abuse they've already felt by making them feel like bad guys for struggling with the effects of trauma. And we're not going to do that in this place. We're going to say, hey. We see you. We want you to believe the right things. We want to walk alongside you in whatever you're feeling. But we also recognize there's a place for additional help. And there are great people in this world who can give you that help. And we'd love to point you to them. Does that make sense? So all that said, God sends the book of Obadiah to the people of Israel to remind them of three key things in the midst of their punishment and suffering, the betrayal of Edom. And the first one of those, and this might seem basic to you, the first one is that God wants to say to them, That he is still in control. That's point one this morning. That God is still in control. And if you're the kind of person who takes notes, I would encourage you to outline, you know, underline, circle that word still. Because theologically, if I were to say to you, how many of you believe that God is in control? You might raise your hand and we'd sort of all affirm like, yes, we believe that God is sovereign and he's in control. But practically and functionally in our lives, in the moments where we're betrayed, in the moments where people turn out to be untrustworthy, in the moments that people we thought were our friends turn out to not be our friends, right? Where we feel isolated and alone. That theological truth of God's control can sometimes feel like he's not in control. We're certainly acutely aware of our lack of control. And many times, it can feel like the person who's betrayed us is actually the one in control. It could feel, for instance, to the Israelites, like in that moment where the Edomites are gathering up their refugees and handing them back over to their enemies, that God is out to lunch somewhere, that God is not paying attention, right? That God has somehow sort of stepped off the scene. In that moment, it would have felt functionally to the Israelites like the Edomites were in charge or like the Babylonians were in charge or like the Assyrians were in charge. What God wants to affirm for people who have any kind of question is that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of punishment, even in the midst of betrayal, God is still present. He's still engaged. He's still aware. He is still in control. Look at the first four verses of the book of Obadiah with me, if you will. The first four verses, God says this. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we've heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God says, I want you to know that the Edomites are feeling fat and happy. They're sitting up in their fortress in the rocks and they're saying to themselves, we're like eagles. We're soaring above the ground. Who can touch us? We got this whole thing figured out. And God says to the people of Israel about Edom, they've made a fatal error, right? They've made a mistake. They think they're in charge, but I am still in control. They have asked a question, which is who can take us down? And I'm about to answer that question. The God who's actually in control is the one who's still in charge, right? God doesn't necessarily say that to Edom. He says that to the Israelites. Well, what's he trying to do? He's trying to remind them that while their perception and their power are limited, his perception and power are unlimited, right? So in the midst of difficulty and betrayal, I've said this before, the hardest thing for us, like the source of most of our frustration in life 
is the fact that you and I are limited in in our perception. We're limited in what we can see and what we know. And we're limited in our power to affect change about the things we do know, right? And in the fact that we don't know what's going to come around the corner. You didn't know that your partner was going to bust up your business. You didn't know that your wife was going to leave you. You didn't know that things were going to go the way they went. Otherwise, you would have done something different maybe, right? You had limited perception. You had limited power. And sometimes in the midst of a recognition or even a like sort of an acute feeling of knowing that you don't know what's going on and knowing that you don't have the power to change the things that are hurting you, it can feel like no one has that awareness and no one has that power. God is saying, I see you and I have the power to fix what is broken. I have the power to restore what is broken. I am still in control, right? God knows and sees all things, including things I can't see, things I won't admit, things I don't understand. And the reality is when I say that God is still in control, there's a part of you that might go, well, I'm glad my enemies aren't in control, right? That might feel like the consolation, but that's not the only consolation. Because when we say that God is in control and what God is affirming here is not just that he is in in control over the Edomites, but that God is in control of everything. What that means is God is not only in control of the person who betrayed you, but God is also in control of you. You are not in control, right? When we affirm that God is in control, one of the things we're affirming is that he is God and we are not. See, many of us would like to be able to dictate to God who gets punished and when and what their punishments look like. The people that have hurt you and the people that have betrayed you and the people that have wronged you. Maybe you've got a list of people you'd like to exact vengeance on. And one of the beautiful things about God being in control is that part of what he's saying is, not only are your enemies not in control, but you also are not in control. I got this, right? It's a good thing that you and I are not God, right? It's a good, it feels sometimes like we'd like to be God and we'd like to exact God's vengeance on other people. But let me ask you this. How would you feel? We all have people. All of us in this room have people in this world who wish that God would punish us. You know what I'm talking about? You have people in your life that wish God would smite you or that God would send a thunderbolt at you or whatever, right? Aren't you glad that your enemies aren't God? Aren't you glad that the people that you've wronged, aren't you glad that the people that you've hurt, aren't you glad that the people you've betrayed are not in control of the universe? It's real easy when we sort of think we want to give God a list of where he should work and how and what he should do. But when you recognize that if any one human were to dictate those things, those things would be dictated by someone with a bias, by someone who's flawed, by someone whose perception is clouded, right? Someone with limited knowledge and limited power. It's a good thing that God says to us, you don't need to be in charge of vengeance, I got it. Where vengeance is necessary, I'll take care of it. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, quoting the Old Testament says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a great thing for us to remember that we're not God, that God is God, and his job is vengeance, right? It's not our job. What's our job? Feed the poor, care for the thirsty, take care of those who are hungry, right? I don't have to be in charge of unfolding all the vengeance that's due. I can just be in charge of serving my fellow man who are as broken as I am, who are as broken as I am, right? God says to them, I am still in control. He's declaring his sovereignty and his awareness, And it isn't that God just steps onto the scene in control when things start to feel like they're going uh, haywire. God is in control. God will be in control. And God has already been in control, right? God's plan of redemption, God's plan of restoration is a plan that he put into effect before the creation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 
says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, right? God is saying, look, my plan to send Jesus to redeem and restore the world isn't a thing I just came up with. It's a thing that I put into place before the earth was created, right? God has always been in control and always will be in control. It's kind of like there is a, there's a hope for us that comes in this. It's like when I, uh, I took my son Jack for the first time to Disneyland, right? And he wanted to ride on the... Uh, I, I can't decide if it's called Autopia or if it's called Autotopia. And there was some debate in the last service over that, Autopia or Auto... You know what I'm talking about. It's the thing with the cars. But my son was little. He was like four or five years old. We go to Disneyland and he's, we're standing in the long line to ride on Autotopia. And uh, we, get, we get closer and he's like, I can't wait to drive that car. I'm going to be the one to drive. And he's like, when I drive it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smash the car in front of us. And I'm going to take it off out of that road. And I'm going to go over that hill and I'm going to drive it over to the submarines. And I'm going to ram it into a submarine. You know what I'm like? Number one, I'm concerned about his aggression, right? There's like a, there's a problem there. But like, that's what he wanted to do with Autotopia. He wanted to run the thing, you know, off the road and take it over into the water. But here's the thing. You think I was ever concerned? No, I was never concerned. Despite his aggressive desires, I was never concerned because as a parent, I know that thing runs on a track, Right? I know that when I hand the steering wheel over to that little four-year-old, we're not going off the track. We're not ramming into anybody else. We're definitely not going in the submarine pond, right? Because Walt Disney is in control of that car, right? (laughs) Not my son, not me, somebody else. And so there is hope and peace for me to be a passenger, right? Kids hate that track on Autotopia, right? They hate that track. Parents, we love that track, right? I'm so thankful for that track because it means I'm not going to die at Disneyland, at least not right then, right? God says to his people in the midst of their punishment and their, the betrayal that they've experienced, he says to them, I am still present and I see what's happening here, right? God is in control and his timeline might extend beyond our earthly life. It says in Hebrews that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these people, they lived faithful lives, not even receiving the promises that they were given, but with hope toward the fact that those promises would be delivered to them later. God is in control, number one. Number two, what we see in Obadiah is not only that God is in control, but that God is just. Look with me at verse 15, Obadiah 15. God says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. God says, not only am I still in control here, but I want you to know that I am just, that I'm holy and just, and God will be the dispenser of justice. He says, as you have done, it will be done unto you. Now, that might make you really excited, right? And as you're thinking about the people who've betrayed you or the people that have lied about you or the people that have wronged you and you're thinking, yeah, God is just and he's gonna humble the prideful, it says in Obadiah, and he's gonna punish the wicked. Before you get too excited, right? Slow down, pump the brakes. And let me remind you that God does humble the proud and he does punish the wicked and that includes you and me. That all of us are, hum- are prideful. That all of us have our wicked moments. We have moments where we're sinful and selfish and prideful and gluttonous and abusive. All of us have these moments. So before you start to rub your hands in eagerness to see God be just, let me remind you that it's actually a really good thing that God's justice is tempered with his mercy and his grace. 
It's a beautiful thing that we worship God for, that he doesn't just give us what we deserve, but in fact, he goes beyond that to give us what we don't deserve. That he calls us his daughters and his sons. That he forgives us of our sin. That he adopts us into his family. That he promises us joy and an inheritance, right? We talked about this last week, but 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says... Um, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, We're waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Similarly, Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You and I are all recipients of the grace that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, like the unmerciful servant, many of us who are happy to have received the grace and mercy of God, that he hasn't given us what we deserve, but he's placed what we deserve onto Jesus, we're really anxious and eager to see our enemies swiftly punished, to see God humble their pride, and to see God punish their wickedness. But it's actually a good thing, and not a thing that should disturb you, that our God's justice and holiness is tempered with mercy and grace. This might be a comfort to you and it might not, but I would remind you that the Lord Jesus himself was betrayed. The Lord Jesus was maligned. The Lord Jesus was lied about. The Lord Jesus was falsely represented. The Lord Jesus experienced all of these things. And yet what he teaches his followers with regard to their enemies is this. Matthew chapter 5 verse 43. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. Sins reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I hear verse 48 pulled out of context a lot, and people use it to talk about holiness. And they say, well, God calls us to be perfect, like he's perfect. And that's true. That is what that verse says. But where it says it in context, what it's equating with perfection is the love of enemies, the kindness to someone who's done you wrong and betrayed you. Jesus understood betrayal. He was betrayed and maligned and misrepresented in all of those things. And yet he was generous to those who were attacking him. That is the model that he set for us. And we are told that we can be perfect like our father by expressing that same generosity to those who've hurt us. Now, I want to say something as a caveat here. I want to be really careful because if you're currently in a situation where you're being abused, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, if you're in an abusive situation, what I'm not saying here is that by extending the grace of God to your abuser, you also have to put yourself in a situation to be re-abused, right? If you're currently in a situation where you're getting beat up emotionally, physically, spiritually, you absolutely have a responsibility and a right to get out of an abusive situation. So what we're not saying is, hey, you know what? God forgave his, his abusers, and so just stay in that situation where you're getting hurt. We would not affirm that. And in fact, we would affirm the opposite. If you're in a situation where you're being abused, we as a church would like to help you get out of that abusive situation. Now, there can still be grace and mercy for the abuser in the spirit of Christ, but that doesn't mean that you have to forcibly remain in a situation where you're being hurt. If you're in this place today or you're watching us online and you're being hurt, we we would like to help you get to a place where you're safe and then you can contemplate the control of God and and the, the promises of God, right, and his justice. He is a God of justice tempered with mercy, and that's a good thing for us. Right? So God says to the people of Israel, he says, I'm still in control. He says, I am just. There will be a punishment for this. And then third and finally, and I've alluded to this already, third and finally in Obadiah, we see God remind them that he's a God who is faithful. 
that not only is he still in control, not only is he just, and that justice is tempered with mercy and grace, but he's a God who is faithful. And what I mean by that is that God keeps his promises. He had said to the people of Israel that they would occupy this land, and now they've been taken into exile, and they have to be wondering, like, what happened to all those promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Here we go off to Babylon, or we go off to Assyria. The Edomites come down out of their fortress, and they gather us up, and they hand us over to our enemies. Like, where are God's promises now? God reaffirms at the end, and this is kind of where Guada got emotional a minute ago, right? God reaffirms to them, like, hey, my promises still stand. Yes, you might be in the middle of suffering. Yes, you might be in the middle of difficulty. Yes, you might have been betrayed by someone that was close to you. But my faithfulness doesn't change. And this is good news for us. Because if you're the kind of person who's been betrayed, or if you've had people that you walked and talked with, Psalm 55 is so meaningful because in it, David says, it would be easier for me if the people that were hurting me were outsiders. But the people that are hurting me, he says, are the ones that I worshipped alongside and I walked to the temple of God with. And it's so much worse, right? You may be in a place where because of the betrayal that's happened in your life, you feel a lack of trust. Or maybe you feel like, who can I trust? Who is faithful? Who keeps their promises? Who has integrity? One of the byproducts of being betrayed is that you start to mistrust everybody. And so one of the beautiful things that God is doing here is he's saying, in this world where, you know what, it is hard to kind of know who you can trust with other human beings because they're broken just like you. There is still someone who is faithful. And there is still someone who keeps his promises, and it's me. God says at the end of Obadiah 15 and verses 17 and following, he says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who were in Zarephath shall possess the cities of the Negev. 20 is a really beautiful verse because he says the exiles of the northern kingdom of Israel and the exiles of the southern kingdom of Israel will be reunited in the fulfillment of my promise and their occupation of the land I gave them, right? So even the longing that the Israelite people had in the midst of their exile to be reunited with their brothers to the north or the south, God says, I will bring unity in my restoration. And then finally in 21, he says, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. If they had any question about whether or not God's kingdom would stand because they were in exile or because the Edomites had betrayed them, God says, I just want it to be really clear to you. You're feeling like I don't keep my promises because you're in the midst of a moment of suffering. But everything I said to you will come to pass. Everything will be true. Well, that's a great message for us because what has God promised us? Well, in places like in places like Matthew 16, God has promised life to those who come to him. In John 15, he's promised joy to those who abide in him. In Matthew chapter 5, he promises a blessing for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In John 6, he promises that none who come to him will ever be lost, that he holds on to us. We have the security in him. God's faithfulness can be trusted. Have you been betrayed by a fellow human being, by your family, by your friends, by people that walk to worship with you and then turn around and stab you in the back? God says, I see you. I'm still in control. I am just, and I will make this right but I am the one who executes justice, not you. Why don't you worry about handing cups of cold water to people? And he says, I am faithful. I keep my promises. This was great news for the people of Obadiah in exile. 
The sovereignty, justice, and faithfulness of God was communicated through Obadiah to God's people for their hope in the midst of suffering. But their hope pales in comparison to the hope we now have in Jesus because he is the ultimate example of God's control, his sovereignty, even control over sin and death, of God's justice in the fact that the sin of the world was placed on him and so his justice was met, but his mercy was extended through his grace and the death and resurrection of Christ. And the fulfillment of his promises. God had promised. God had promised to his people. That he would be with them. That no longer would they have to go to a place. To meet with God. But that he would be in them. That their word would dwell within, his word would dwell within them. They would be his people. And he would be their God. And he would make his residence among us. And in Jesus he fulfilled those promises. These promises that he made to the people of Israel. In the book of Obadiah. Were really helpful to them. They are more helpful to us. And it doesn't mean that it'll take the pain away. It doesn't mean that it won't take time to heal. It doesn't mean that there aren't places where you're actually going to need professional help to untangle some of the trauma in your life. It doesn't mean you have to stay in an abusive situation. But what it does mean is that God sees you in the midst of your suffering and he's with you. He's still in control and he's just and merciful. And he keeps his promises. The Lord's kingdom will reign. And that's good news for those of us who've immigrated some time ago or who immigrate today from the kingdom of self to the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would take this message of hope, hope in the truth of who you are, hope in your justice and goodness, hope in your faithfulness and the keeping of your promises, your victorious nature. God, I pray that in the midst of whatever people may be feeling individually in this room, the suffering they've felt, the betrayal they've experienced, the moments where where they lack trust, where they're hurt, God, that they would have the opportunity this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to lift their eyes to who you are. Not only that these things about you are true, but these true things about you, you wanted us to hear in the midst of our pain, to give us hope. That you are working a plan that you have been working since before the creation of the world that you will absolutely complete. And it is for your glory and our good. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.